Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Intercepted. I'm John Schwartz, a senior writer with The Intercept. Last week, Colin Powell, former Secretary of State under George W. Bush, former Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and former National Security Advisor under Ronald Reagan, died from complications related to COVID-19 and cancer. The corporate media had always loved Powell in life and loved him just as much in death. That was General Colin Powell, the warrior, concise, calm, lethal clarity. A great American and his words that continue to lift and inspire. Well, that's how you know you've, you've, you've lived a life well spent. When, right. when that is your legacy, mm-hmm. right, you've done it right here on Earth. And that was a great example of a truly, truly great American. Amen. A show of hands. How many of you are inspired by his, his journey? All of you. Decorated warrior, distinguished diplomat, a good and decent man, Husband, father, grandfather. Colin Powell didn't just break barriers, he built bridges. And not only did this child of immigrants live the American dream, he embodied it. What the press didn't say was this. The most important thing about Colin Powell, the reason he rose so high, is that he was a salesman. And just as honest as anybody, trying to sell you something on TV. From Vietnam to Panama to Iraq, Powell sold U.S. foreign policy and U.S. wars, and he was great at it. Well, the glowing profiles were entirely predictable. I mean, this was a guy they, the the blob or the whatever you want to call it, the consensus had worshipped for decades because he was exactly, you know, he so fitted the bill as someone who went along to get along and went along to get upwards. So he was, you know, he was exactly what was needed and accepted. That's Andrew Coburn. Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, longtime national security journalist, and author of many, many books. He comes from a powerhouse family of journalists. His father, his siblings, his niece, and his wife have all exposed real abuses of power. I feel like everyone would be scared to go over to his house because the Coburns would uncover all of your crimes immediately. And for years, Andrews has been specifically documenting what happens inside the U.S. government's war machine. So he's looked behind the front men, like Powell, and examined what U.S. military spending is really about. Not even war, exactly, but instead, the care and upkeep of the gigantic military-industrial complex. Year after year, Congress ships more money off to the Pentagon. 
The U.S. spends far more on its military than any other country in the world. Just last month, the Democratic-controlled House voted in favor of appropriating $768 billion for the 2022 defense budget. And of course, we say defense budget since it's the Department of Defense. It used to be called the Department of War, but that was changed in 1949, the same year the novel 1984 was published. And as a result, military contractors building airplanes, bombs, getting started on the weapons of the year 2060, etc., are making a figurative and, of course, literal killing. U.S. companies, including Lockheed Martin and Boeing, sold more than $23.7 billion in arms last year to nearly 100 different countries. Well, Lockheed Martin earnings are out. Revenue of $17.03 billion. That was a beat versus the estimates of $16.9 billion. Andrew's new book, The Spoils of War, is an incredible compendium of avarice and folly, all using our money and, of course, the lives of millions of people around the world. Andrew and I spoke about his new book, his journalism, and Colin Powell's death last week. We began by talking about some of Powell's forgotten crimes, ones that didn't damage his career, but actually boosted him up the ladder to the top. I always thought of him, I mean, long before his, even before his uh, Iraq-UN debacle, um, as a horse holder, which I mean, someone who was always there to lend a willing hand to hold the horse of whoever was in charge and enable them. It was one episode. We've, you know, there's been a bit of discussion since his uh, his recent demise about his uh, his role in Me Lai. Fifty years ago today, on March 16, 1968, U.S. soldiers attacked the Vietnamese village of Me Lai. U.S. troops arrived at 7:30 a.m. local time. Even though the soldiers met no resistance, they slaughtered more than 500 Vietnamese women, children, and old men over the next four hours in what became known as the My Lai Massacre. So he grabbed my rifle and just went to the heads of everyone and put it between their eyes and just pulled the trigger. And the guy's just walking up there and shooting in the houses and stuff. I can uh, further say that I did not see any slaughter at My Lai 4 that day and uh, none was reported to me. And I'll further state that I did not order any massacre at Miley 4. So I think I killed about 18 or 20 people. Basically, he had to write one of the initial reports, which, of course, covered up and obscured and actually, I think, contained the deathless phrase, the uh, Vietnamese people loved the American troops, or was that effect, when he knew full well what had happened and the whole army machinery was cranking into gear to cover up this horrible massacre I'm reminded of something I read about in 2007 for The Nation. It was actually in the, uh, a book review about the gassing of Halabja. Once upon a time, quite well remembered, but now more or less forgotten war crime by Saddam Hussein when uh, the Iranian-backed Kurds had taken a town in northeast uh, Iraq and Saddam dropped poison gas to retake the town and killed huge numbers of civilians. Thousands of Kurds were killed when the Iraqi army said it attacked Iranian forces in the closing stage of the Iran-Iraq war. Zangi Abadi, like so many other Iranians, signed up to fight after Iraq invaded Iran in 1980. But he was gassed during Iraq's first major chemical weapons attack four years later. One thing worth remembering in this context is that the US 
immediately swung into action to cover this up because we, at that point, we were Saddam's good friend and ally, and we were determined to obscure the fact that this was an Iraqi war crime and to stick it on the Iranian. Iraq denies using chemical weapons. It says Iran carried out the attack. Whoever's to blame, the victims are clear, civilians who were caught up in one of the world's most unforgiving wars. And central to this effort was none other than Colin Powell. At that point, he was national security advisor in the Reagan White House, and he was a key operator in organizing a very efficient worldwide disinformation campaign. I mean, it was up and running within days, as I recall, to persuade everyone this was an Iranian war crime. And of course, it had nothing to do with the Iraqis themselves, and it was shocking and loathsome. And then, fast forward to 2003, to the degree that the invasion of Iraq had any kind of moral legitimacy at all, it came from the uh, gassing of Halabja, the use of chemical weapons on on Halabja. Um, and, you know, the Bush people endlessly talked about Saddam dropped poison gas on his own people. And none was more eloquent than Secretary of State Colin Powell, who went and gave a... He visited Halabja right after the fall of Saddam and gave an eloquent speech about how shocking it was and it was very moving and everything, when he had been a key architect of covering it up. What I can tell you is that what happened here in 1988 is never going to happen again. I mean, at least you had some giant criminals like Rumsfeld and Cheney, who were like, you know, the people in the driver's seat, and sort of trotting along behind, the enabler was Colin Powell, speaking as Secretary of State at the UN, and in this particular otherwise long-forgotten incident. Saddam Hussein's use of mustard and nerve gas against the Kurds in 1988 was one of the 20th century's most horrible atrocities. Yeah, it is funny with people like Cheney. I always get the very strong sense that they resent the liberal adoration of people like Powell when they know very well that Powell is exactly like him. He's just better at PR. Well, yeah, but they found him useful. You know, we got to sell this um, Iraq deal and who better, (laughs) you know, I think they've surely enjoyed the joke of making this liberal pontificator go up and lie in order to sort of keep keep his job, I suppose. Indeed, the facts and Iraq's behavior show that Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. And then and they must have watched it with great delight and amusement, seeing seeing Colin willingly, the sort of the lapdog or the horseholder or whatever, you know, do their bidding. I'm sure they got a kick out of that. And, you know, in your story from 2007 about Powell going to Halabja, they're also like further extraordinary details that I think almost no one knows about. Some of what you write about says that it was uh, because Halabja was kind of abandoned by everyone after uh, the attack on it, that it had become a place that was open to influence by sort of hardline Islamists. And that that in turn was used by Powell at the UN as part of his evidence about how, well, Al-Qaeda is in Iraq, like they're, they're right up there near Halabja. Exactly. There's a ghastly circularity to it, isn't it? I mean, he, that again was them grasping at some shred of respectability for their criminal enterprise. But, you know, used by Colin Powell, who, anyway, what a, what a disgrace he was. And how disgraceful it is that, that he's now, you know, all these, you know, floods of tears in Washington, the, in the official press, state-influenced media, whatever you want to call it, 
you know, about this noble warrior. Yes, I wonder if you agree with my rule of thumb, which is that uh, the more enthusiastic the DC press corps is about any political figure, the more appalling they are. And that, for instance, Ellen Greenspan was seen as this tremendous, perspicacious, a wise man running the economy. And in fact, he was largely responsible for the gigantic, incredibly destructive housing bubble. And, uh, you know, he got out just before it collapsed. And then he went to work for the guy, the hedge fund manager who had profited so much from shorting it. Uh, but anyway, as I say, I think that you really can't go wrong. Like if they love someone, they are awful. Yeah, it, I think it's, it's some sort of... um inbuilt mechanism that sort of prompts this. So maybe it's some sort of deep sort of, you know, back in their sort of deep cortex of their brains, they know that there's someone who's an obvious crook and asshole that uh, therefore he needs further inflation. Remember for years, they worshipped John McCain. John McCain, senator from Arizona, was regarded as this sort of noble warrior and indeed a maverick. It's wonderful to be called a maverick. And in fact, John McCain was a sort of absolute tool and cat's paw of the military-industrial complex throughout his career. It was there in plain sight. He would say, we are going to crack down on some terrible example of waste, fraud, and abuse, and um, then do nothing about it. So that's, that's what made him a maverick. Like, you're, you're yeah. absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, as long as you're a toothless maverick or you, you never actually use your teeth, that's fine. If you're a real maverick, then, 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 then they all turn on you. Yeah, it was extraordinary to see the entire system gear up in rage at the exit from Afghanistan. Yes, it was amazing. And actually, also, in a way, disheartening to see how what sort of patsies the White House and the Biden people were to sort of to not get out of the way. Biden did the right thing, finally, you know, so we're getting out of this ridiculous engagement. And the military who I think were keen to move on, I know were fairly keen to move on, they organized the evacuation. So to the extent it was a screw-up, it's on them. But they very adroitly managed to stick it all on, you know, Biden and Blinken and Sullivan and whipped up, you know, the media to denounce Biden for having, you know, declared a war over. Why is everyone acting like it's their first day on the job? And their entire job is to protect American citizens, and yet they're more scared of offending the political left than those we left behind. This is not just about the overall idea of leaving Afghanistan. This is about leaving hastily and ineptly. Secretary Blinken, how did President Biden get this so wrong? This is beyond a national embarrassment. Innocent people will likely die as a result of all of this. More will die. So congratulations, Joe. This is your mission accomplished. It's, it's interesting. It reminded me, of, in some ways, of the... Um the first impeachment of, of Trump. Trump was impeached, really, for holding up an arms deal. Remember that he, you know, wasn't rushing weapons. He'd, he'd made weapon supplies or weapon sale to Ukraine, conditional on them giving them giving him some dirt on Biden. Mr. Zelensky wanted to discuss American military assistance, but Mr. Trump said he wanted a favor. President Trump was withholding hundreds of millions of dollars of military aid. His opponents smelled a rat. They said the president was abusing his power, using his office for personal political gain. Do you remember the outrage and, you know, how dare he do this, putting the national security of the United States in peril and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's, you know, it's, 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 you threaten something deep. So declaring a war over and admitting defeat, which is what Biden, I think, very commendably did, that really stirred up 
the deep state. I don't think, I'm not sure you're allowed to use that phrase. We, we, we have to deny we have a deep state, but we obviously do. And, you know, they were all frothing at the mouth and denouncing him for the chaotic withdrawal and the shameful humiliation and all the rest. In fact, it's probably the one decent act of American foreign policy in the last 20 years, I'd say. But this, this is a great way to, uh, you know, introduce your new book uh, titled The Spoils of War, because you begin by quoting Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers. Uh, and Hamilton wrote that many, many wars take their origin entirely in private passions, in the attachment, enmities, interests, hopes, and fears of leading individuals. Men of this class have, in too many instances, abused the confidence they possessed and assuming the pretext of some public motive, have not scrupled to sacrifice the national tranquility to personal advantage or personal gratification. Now, I will say that that is something that uh, I was not taught in schools. That was not part of any class that I took. Uh, I believe it is also, it does not appear in the uh, very popular Broadway musical Hamilton. Uh, no, I think that runs counter to the narrative. Uh, a lot of things don't appear in <laughs> in Hamilton. And as in, you know, we're all taught to revere the Federalist Papers, the founding document of our constitutional democracy, but someone, no one brings that one up. But uh, Hamilton knew what he was talking about, obviously. And I defy you, I defy you to find an exception. You know, we hear so much about, people talk about, about foreign policy and strategy, um, but I defy you to find an example where someone did a single solitary thing for foreign policy as opposed to winning the next election. I mean, uh, or, you know, making money. And, you know, as I argue in my book, basically you can't understand military strategy and actually foreign policy too, though I don't talk so much about that, unless you understand this is the case, that, you know, why do we do this or that? If you look closely, it's always because someone aims to make some money out of it. So I, I wanted to quote something that, that you yourself had written in the book at the beginning, which is something that I resisted believing for a long time, but your reporting and just the basic facts of life in America have convinced me that you're 100% correct. You say, outsiders generally find it hard to grasp an essential truth about the U.S. military machine, which is that war fighting efficiency has a low priority by comparison with considerations of personal and internal bureaucracies. The military are generally not interested in war, save as a means to budget enhancement. Well, that is, you know, patently true. I mean, um, you might say that probably, I, I guess I have to sort of, you know, allow an exception, maybe, you know, in the immediate aftermath of Pearl Harbor, perhaps. But, but largely, it's completely true. And, uh, you know, it, again, in recent years, I defy you to find an exception. I mean, my one of my story I heard a long time ago, which I quote in the book, which was told me by a late friend of mine, Dick Halleck, who was an officer in the Korean War. In winter, it gets jolly cold in Korea, the army's boots were completely inadequate and everyone was getting frostbite. And um, in fact, most of the casualties in that first winter of the war were from frostbite because they had these terrible boots. So they used to raid the Chinese trenches to steal Chinese boots because they were kind of nice and warm and well padded and sort of, you know, kept your feet warm and the toes didn't fall off. And he said, he said, he used to think to himself, why am I, a soldier in the richest country in the world, <laughs> risking my life to steal the boots of soldiers of the poorest country in the world? And the reason was that they were, the military was spending, you know, the defense budget had gone through the roof, of course, uh, with the onset of the war, but the money wasn't going 
to buy boots, it was going to buy B-47 nuclear bombers, which could fly at great speed most of the way to Russia. But they were pouring billions into that. We will build up our own army, navy and air force, and make more weapons for ourselves and our allies. Why? Because I, I was convinced, obviously because the aerospace manufacturers um, had rather more political you know, clout and money than the bootmakers. So forget the bootmakers. It's the, it's the airplane manufacturers who got the money. It is shocking, like to any sort of conventional perspective, to see all of these examples where the very basic needs of the people who are purportedly so venerated in the U.S. military are completely ignored. And you have a startling and alarming quote about this from Pierre Spray. So he was a weapons designer, correct, at the Pentagon. But he spoke about you know, U.S. soldiers being betrayed on the ground as like a festering sore in the history of uh, the U.S. military. And you know, just reading your book, that that becomes absolutely obvious that for all the beautiful words that are said about U.S. soldiers, the people really running things do not seem to care about them at all. Oh, really? I mean, I, you know, let me let me cite some examples. Um, it was really shocking. Even I was shocked. You know, callous though I am. At the in the early days of the Iraq War, families of soldiers and Marines were going into debt to buy essential equipment for their sons and daughters who were going into combat, uh, body armor, night vision goggles, binoculars, stuff like that, because the army couldn't be bothered to supply them. Well, I, I remember talking to families, you know, who'd had to do this, but also I know um, some two friends of mine, are wealthy women whose sons went into the Marines. You know, their sons wrote to them saying, you know, Mom, no one here has a, you know, can afford, but their families can't afford body armor. So we had unit, both cases, the entire platoons in the United States Marines being equipped through the sort of bounty, the, <laughs> the philanthropy of, the, of these wealthy, wealthy women who sort of went and bought out, you know, stores of body armor and things like that. I thought this is like kind of medieval. I'll give you another example. The army, they have a whole helmet bureaucracy, you know, making helmets, uh, obviously, you know, a very, very basic tool of the soldier's trade is to have a, a decent helmet. And the helmets in the most recent wars, the main danger to troops has not so much been bullets and shrapnel, but blast effect. I mean, the blast from IEDs. The army managed to design a new helmet that enhanced the effect of blast. And when this was pointed out to them, they refused to change it. It turned out you could mitigate this ill effect by you know, extra padding. And people were sort of making their own padding in the Marines that I've talked to. But the army refused to put in extra padding. The bureaucracy, for whatever reason, couldn't be bothered. Furthermore, the, uh, there, was a, there was a contract for weaving the Kevlar was going to a, one particular contractor. And the contractor was using too few threads was sort of making extra money by putting too little, basically too little Kevlar in the helmets. And when whistleblowers brought this to the attention of authorities, they were promptly fired. <laughs> and they went on doing this. You know, this is, should give you the idea. Now, one particularly awful example of the kind of thing that you're talking about now is, is also in the news right now, which is hypersonic missiles. And uh, my understanding is that these are different from boring old intercontinental ballistic missiles because 
They fly much lower, in theory, if they ever worked, than ICBMs, and they have an, an erratic trajectory that would make them hard to shoot down with regular boring old missile defense systems. You have written about this uh, in your book and elsewhere. What is the latest news about these that is getting Washington so much in a tizzy? We've had a particularly, I mean, a a really egregious piece of threat inflation where um, some interested parties in the Pentagon leaked to a all too credulous Financial Times reporter news that the Chinese, the dreaded Chinese, had tested one of these hypersonic missiles which had flown all the way around the world skipping through the atmosphere and landed within, actually it missed the target, but landed within a few dozen miles of the target. There's new concern tonight about China's military capabilities amid a report the country recently tested a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile. So, bottom line, all this essentially means China is close to being able to launch a nuclear warhead against any other nation without any warning, and there'd be no defense against it. You know, predictably, already you're hearing in, you know, in from Congress and from the military, you know, demands that we really step up our own hypersonic effort. To me, this is a perfect example of something I quote a couple of times in the book, which is originally coined by a guy called Ivan Selin, who was a Pentagon official in the 1960s, who would welcome new people coming to work for him. He'd say, welcome to the world of strategic analysis, where we program weapons that don't work to meet threats that don't exist. (laughs) And uh, that's what we have in spades with the hypersonic missile. I mean, very briefly, let me say why I'm speaking so derisively about it. First off, you know, all we have is a couple of blind quotes from the the Pentagon. So why should we believe a word of it? Um, Secondly, the way a hypersonic weapon, the sort of attractive feature of it is meant to be that it's aerodynamic. In other words, it flies through the atmosphere and it can can maneuver, which means, you know, it's it's in in the atmosphere. So it, ha- you know, it has control surfaces like a plane, so it can go this way and that, thus making it difficult to, you know, to shoot down because theoretically, at least, with a ballistic missile, you know, once it's taken off and has gone a little distance, you know exactly you can plot its trajectory uh, easily. So, you you know, in theory, at least, it's very easy to shoot down, not as in practice. So this is designed to get round this sort of alleged vulnerability of a ballistic missile. The problem is that if it's not maneuvering, what's the point? It might as well be a ballistic missile, because if it's going in a straight line, you know, it, you know where it's going to be and you can shoot it down. If it's maneuvering, it's going to be encountering friction. I mean, it's every time it maneuvers, it sort of it slows down basically because you're putting up extra friction by you know by turning left or right or up or down so the idea that it can glide around the world i think is ridiculous i mean this what really put hypersonics in the news was by vladimir putin like 3 years ago now where he announced the russians had a super duper hypersonic missile called the avangard and you know he put up at a meeting of the russian federation he put up a big sort of uh, display showing the the avant-garde's raining down, actually heading towards Mar-a-Lago, as far as I could see. During his State of the Nation speech Thursday, Russian President Vladimir Putin described new strategic nuclear weapons that he claims can't be intercepted. I looked into this, and you can read this in the book. I said, <laughs> turned out that the avant-garde was a very ancient program. The Russians had been working on it since the 1980s. The reason they'd been working on it was the factory where it was being made would employed 10,000 people. And they, did, they were worried about the unemployment and consequent unrest if they dropped it. Then with the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was put into mothballs. Then they revived it in the early 2000s. 
and Putin went to see a test in 2004, which actually failed, <laughs> didn't work. But now Putin needs to impress his people that he's really standing up the Americans. And, and the US, you know, on this side, we have reacted predictably. Everyone, just as now with this Chinese effort, everyone three years ago said, oh, the Russians have got this dreadful, super duper hypersonic thing and money, the money tree shook. And indeed, I was particularly noted that the head of Marilyn Hewison, the CEO of uh, Lockheed, the largest arms weapons contractor, actually, they have now built, but they were breaking ground for a new hypersonic factory. And to break ground, she used a golden shovel, which I thought was very appropriate. <laughs> One, two, three, break ground. To me, the whole hypersonic furore, which is, you know, still echoing as we speak, is a perfect example of what a what a racket the whole thing is. Yes, I like to imagine that Lockheed charged that golden shovel to the government on a cost plus basis. <laughs> I'm sure we paid many thousands of dollars per ounce on that. I mean, a few years ago, they were discovered to be charging $10,000 for a toilet seat cover. And when the... Uh, under Secretary of the Air Force was sort of challenged on this by, uh, I think it was a congressman. Um, he said, well, we needed to pay that price to ensure the, a profit for the manufacturer. <laughs> 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 I, I thought it was wonderful. At least, at last, honesty. Honesty. <laughs> the, their, their cost was $9,000 per toilet seat cover, yeah. and so they needed to charge us 10000 so they'd be able to make a reasonable profit. Yeah, exactly. Now, I have a question for which I believe I already know the answer, but I feel I should ask it anyway. The Democrats and the Republicans, clearly they're both guilty of protecting and enhancing this kind of war profiteering. Is there any difference between the two parties, or is it pretty much uniform across the board? It's uniform. Um, the You know, the Republicans are more sort of unabashed. The, there are fringes of the Democrats who sort of who say, you know, we should be spending the money on um, hospitals and healthcare and schools, which, of course, we should. But they're, you know, they're on the fringe. I mean, recently, the uh, progressives introduced a resolution in Congress to uh, cut the defense budget by 10%, which was crushed like a bug in a bipartisan vote. Both the House and Senate Armed Services Committees, which are controlled by the Democrats, both recently voted to increase next year's defense spending by an amount, or the, year, you know, the future defense budget, by an amount more than even the Pentagon had asked for. And that's the Democrats talking. So yeah, it, there's really zero difference between the two. That's where the money is. This is something most people know, if you, you, know, if you sort of prod them, you know, that, uh, that you know, in the military industrial complex has its tentacles in every every part of the uh, of the country. I, you know, it's, it's tragic. You see things like the tank, Lima, Ohio, where we make tanks, the M1 tank. The army has many more tanks than it knows what to do with, hundreds of them in storage. And yet, whenever they talk about maybe not <laughs> closing down the Lima plant, the Ohio senators, including one of which is Sherrod Brown, noted progressive, good guy in lots of ways, absolutely spring, you know, for obvious reasons, the defense of Lima, the Lima plant, and we go on cranking out unneeded tanks. So it's, uh, you know, my other, I always thought it was very sad that there's, 
there's this whole proposal launched by a, a program or a series of programs launched by Obama, who else, to you know completely overhaul, build a whole new sort of nuclear war-fighting strategic force, a new bomber, new missile, new warhead, new submarine, and new plutonium pits, you know, the, the core of a nuclear weapon. Now, we have many more plutonium pits than we need, but, you know, the Los Alamos nuclear lab would like to have that business. And when he was in the Senate, Tom Udall, as liberal and decent a senator as you could find, he fought like a tiger to, to have this boondoggle, you know, go through. You know, it's kind of, it's in plain sight. And I've, you know, it's depressing. I don't know how we, uh, how we get rid of it. Whenever I read one of your books, I, I think two things. Number one, why are there such a minuscule number of people covering this kind of subject from this perspective? And number two, how do you get away with it? And I should say not just you, but, you know, you and your wife, Leslie. Certainly, I've, I've followed both of your work for a long time when you're working on stuff together and individually. How do you pull this off? Because there must be some secret. There's no secret. I think it's just sort of knowing where to look. It's not really that hard. I um, mean, it's really, you know, a question of orientation. If you if you start on the <laughs> with the belief, which I've come to, I didn't originally start with this this attitude way back as a as a stripling, but it came to me fairly early on um, that actually the whole thing is basically, you know, it's all about the money and it's you know, with a very high quotient of crooks and thieves. Then you look at things a certain way, and then. You know, you start looking for documents and test results and things with that in mind, which all too rarely happens these days. It used to happen a little bit more. You had reporters who would look at things this way. I think there's, you know, there's a thing which isn't just about journalism. It's about the whole approach to this issue, which is, you know, hawks and doves. If you're a hawk, you know, you, you want a strong military and you therefore disposed to believe the military that when they tell you they're producing a strong military, a strong defense. And if you're a dove, you think the whole thing's really rotten and, you know, we should be spending the money on hospitals or whatever. And what I say, you know, I always think, that, you know, how well is it working? How are we actually getting a decent defense out of this? And actually, that way, I mean, you can bridge the ideological divide that way. I mean, I, you know, a lot of my good sources and indeed friends are whose political views, you know, would... Uh, in other areas, might make your hair stand on end. But, you know, they are interested in this issue. It helps to have a bit of a historical memory. And it helps to talk to people, you know, go to, um, go to the trade shows. You know, I find it's very useful going around talking to them. It, you know, I think with great nostalgia, the days when you could walk into the Pentagon and sort of wander around and knock on people's doors, I can sort of just remember that. And then became so you had they had to come and sort of clear you but once you were inside you could wander around and now of course you practically get sent to Guantanamo if you're found in the Pentagon unescorted I wonder if you're familiar with the anthropological phenomenon of social silence which I think explains a great deal of this it is the perspective that in all societies not just ours but in all societies the most important aspects of those societies are surrounded by a kind of silence, of 
very little discussion of them. So if you live in a society that is ruled by a god king, you don't have a bunch of newspapers debating like, are there really such things as god kings? Uh (laughs) Yes and no, we're going to debate. And you see that in the United States, you know, clearly the most important economic institution is the Federal Reserve. Like, does anybody truly talk about the Federal Reserve or understand how it works? Like, even very well-educated people? Like, no. The Pentagon is at the center of how American society works in foreign policy and also economic policy. And it would make sense that it's very hard to sort of break that silence and get people to want to discuss it. It's absolutely true. That's why it's so important to do that. You know, my father, who was a a journalist who inspired me in a lot of ways. I mean, he always said you should always pick an enemy as at least twice as big as yourself. Obviously, the Pentagon is many times more than that. Um, yeah, there's an absolute ring of silence uh, around it. Unfortunately, what's happened is, you know, Vietnam, well, you know, if it had any good effects, one of it, it was such a sort of huge shock to the society because so many Americans were getting killed. It was such a sort of undeniable disaster that people had to, you know, were impelled to commit truth about it and to sort of accept truths about it. And, to, you know, the Pentagon Papers had a huge effect on people. And that sort of washed on for a long time afterwards. People were prepared to accept that this thing had feet, knees and thighs of clay. You know, that it was really a questionable piece of uh, institution indeed. And that's kind of worn off, you know, the great, the military loved the 1991 war in the Gulf because, you know, actually, I think George Bush Sr. actually said this gets rid of the Vietnam syndrome. The gratitude, I feel, uh, not just to the troops overseas, uh, but to those who have assisted the United States of America, like our Secretary of Defense, uh, like our Chairman of our Joint Chiefs, and so many other unsung heroes who have made all this possible. It's a proud day for America. And by God, we've kicked Vietnam syndrome once and for all. Thank you very, very much. It was sort of considered wonderful, you know, it worked so well. We had these precision weapons, which actually didn't work so well once you got past the PR. And since then, there's been this sort of veneration of the military, of which, you know, most people have no experience. You know, once upon a time, we had the draft, and so you know a lot of people were around who had a fairly first-hand knowledge of what a sort of crappy organ, you know, institution it basically was of bumbling bureaucracy and so forth. Now, you know, most Americans know little or nothing about, have no experience in the military. The military is largely invisible. Even in Washington, you don't see people in uniform. So we're, you know, we don't. It's like it's an abstract thing, and therefore makes them makes them much easier to sell the idea of a super proficient military and, you know, uh, as amplified by their all their propagandists on the news media. Now, I can't let you go without getting your point of view on a weird theory of mine about why the kind of stuff that you do is, is so important and really genuinely sort of noble Uh, which is what I like to call uh, the gossip theory of journalism. And it goes like this, like, like, you know, you go to a restaurant to meet a friend and you get there first and you sit down and you wait for your friend. And then at the next table, there are a couple of people gossiping and you know like there's like well i can't believe that marcy like broke up with sam again it's like the third time and marianne's etsy store isn't doing very well and you're listening to them you're like 
this is the most boring thing I have ever heard in my life. Like, why are they wasting their lives talking about this? And then your friend arrives and the two of you start gossiping about people that you know. And it is the most fascinating, most compelling (laughs) thing imaginable. And I think that the way people sort of think about the world works in the same way is that once you have sort of a basic knowledge of a situation, all the details, new information is incredibly compelling. But if you don't know anything, you know, it's like watching a sport where you've never seen it before. You don't know the rules. Like, like who cares? This is the dumbest thing that people could possibly do. And I think that one very basic function that you would like journalism to serve is to move important subjects from the category of gossip about people that you don't know into the category of gossip about people that you do know. And the kind of stuff that you do is absolutely fantastic about it. Like, the more that I've read your work, the more I've wanted to read work by other people. And, it, you know, once you have a basis in these kinds of things, like, it all fits together. And so I wonder if you think that there's anything to that, that, like, one of the problems with this is just that people just don't know anything about it. But once you can get them interested in the subject, they are going to want to know more. I love it. Yeah, I think you're entirely right. I mean, um, you know, to bring the gossip to your, you know, make it about your table so that once you're into it in this particular topic, you you can get really excited about the, um, I don't know, the loading mechanism on a on a Russian tank. Um, or, you know, uh, <laughs> I really get off on that. I love it. You know, I can, I can read about that stuff all day. But I do try and persuade people this is really important because... This, writ small and also writ large, and when we're talking about, you know, incinerating the planet or these morons who want to have a military confrontation with China, you know, this is going to infect you. So you better pay attention. So you need to get, you need to be like me and get fascinated by it. Andrew Coburn is the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, a longtime national security journalist and author of The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thank you. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. Follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Jose Oliveras is lead producer. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. And Rick Kwan mixed our show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. And I'm John Schwartz. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find us. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. Until next time. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10 year, 100,000 mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.